Well, Peter was not one of the cool kids in school. He was scrawny, skinny, a bit of a weakling, a little antisocial. He was picked on a lot. He had uh, extremely bad vision, and so he wore these thick, thick glasses. Uh, He was a magnet for bullies throughout his school years. Until one day, a bully was busy picking on him, and Peter stood his ground. He had a newfound confidence. This infuriated the bully, and so the bully struck out at him, but Peter managed to dodge the blow. This infuriated the bully even more, and so he started punching faster and faster, and the the faster the attack came, the more quickly Peter would move, and he just kept dodging the blows until finally, with a soft push, he flicked the attacker and threw him across the room, much to the, the awe and surprise of the onlooking boys and girls in school. What no one knew is that while Peter was recently visiting an experimental uh, engineering firm, he had been bitten by a radioactive spider. Yes, Peter Parker was now your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. At first, he just used his powers to have fun, swing around on the webbing, uh, enjoy the, the new predictive intuition he had, his spidey sense and his lightning quick reflexes. He would climb walls and throw around heavy objects, but he soon learned a lesson that would shape the rest of his life and mission. When faced with an opportunity to prevent a criminal, he merely stepped aside saying, this isn't my responsibility. That criminal went on to be the person that murdered Peter's own grandfather. And that's when the sage words of Peter's grandfather really struck home with him when he had once said, with great power, comes great responsibility. Not just anyone can be a superhero. It takes more than a spandex costume and cheesy puns and superhuman strength. Superheroes need to be role models. They need to use their powers for the good of society, not for personal gains. Uh, They need to keep as a secret their personal uh, superpowers and their strength, the secret to their strength. Now, have you ever wondered what it would look like if uh, our superheroes were just regular teenagers, selfish, violent, hormonal teenagers that couldn't keep a secret? Well, we're about to find out what that would look like. Turn to the days that the judges ruled Israel, chapter 15. Judges 15, we've been following the career of our superhero. Last week, we met Samson. We nicknamed him the Hulk. We saw how he had a bit of a sweet tooth for the honey that he found in a lion that he was, uh, as he was walking along his way, he killed the lion and on, when he was on his way back there had been a hive of wild bees that set up some honey in there and he ate from this unclean dead carcass, thus violating his Nazarite vow. He also had spent some time uh, at the drinking party for his bachelor, probably breaking another one of the Nazarite vows that he wasn't supposed to have any fruit of the vine, wine. Uh, But he still has his long hair. That was part of the Nazarite vow taken on his behalf at birth. And his long hair set him apart from the Philistines. Remember that the Philistines are occupying Israel at this time. And Israel, having reached a new low, has not cried out to God for deliverance. But God has initiated deliverance by raising up Samson. Now, there have been high hopes for Samson that he would be the Messiah, that he would be the one that delivers Israel from their oppressors. Uh, There was an angelic announcement of his birth, There was a a type of miraculous conception because his mother had been barren until that time. And uh, he had been told, Manoah and his wife had been told that their child would begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And then Samson grows up and 
his sweet tooth leads him to another kind of honey when he falls in love with one of the Philistine honeys and uh, decides that he wants to marry her simply because she is good in his eyes or right in my eyes. And remember, that's the problem with the book of Judges is everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so the hopes of the Messiah have been shattered at this point. This is a man breaking his vows to God, uh, trying to blend in instead of rebelling against the Philistines. And yet, as distressing as this was to his parents, we know from what the narrative tells us, this was of the Lord. This is exactly what God wanted. Remember that the last thing that happened is at his bachelor's party before his wedding, there was a, a riddle that he posed to his, his 30 homies, we call them, his, uh, his groomsmen, his, his kind of uh, bachelor party friends that had been arranged for him by his bride because he doesn't have any friends. Remember, he's a very isolated human being who constantly wants to blend in with the Philistines to make friends with them, and yet God keeps isolating him. And so we see the same thing at his party. So he has these 30 uh, guys there, and he, he makes this riddle, and we, we read some of the Hebrew and showed how it rhymed, and it's this funny little pun that he makes about um, finding something sweet in the eater, and what could that be? And he hadn't told anyone his secret about finding the honey in the lion. So these guys are now, they, take, they had a wager for 30 suits of clothing, so 30 to 1 odds, and they can't guess the riddle, so they go and threaten his bride. We're going to kill you. We're going to burn you in your house if we don't get this riddle. So she uses her superpower against Samson. Do you remember what her superpower was? Some of, yeah, nagging, nagging. Um, nobody here has that superpower, I'm sure, but there, there are women who have that superpower, and she was one of them, and so she, like a dripping tap, nagged and nagged and nagged and uh, manipulated him. Oh, you only hate me. You only hate me. You don't love me unless you tell me the riddle. So he tells her the riddle, and boom, she goes and tells the Philistines immediately, and so they, they guess the riddle, and that is the spark that ignites the first step in the deliverance of Israel where he just turns into the Hulk, as it were. He, he gets the superhuman strength and this anger, and he storms into town, and he goes to collect the 30 suits. He just sees people walking around in like a 42 regular and kills them, and he strips them. And remember, he's not allowed near a dead body, but he's making a whole bunch of dead bodies. So he just keeps breaking that vow over and over. He comes back. He's now an official serial killer. He's a mass murderer. He comes. He drops these 30 suits of bleeding clothes there and says, there, and storms off. Um, and that's kind of where it ended, right? That's, that's it. Chapter 14, verse 20 ended with this ominous line. Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> you know, and now we wait. What's going to happen? So we're going to pick up the narrative of Samson's angry rampage in four escalating scenes as they go on. We're going to see this deliverer, the deliverer provoked, then rejected, then the deliverer delivers, and then we'll see him dependent. So let's first, as we read this, it'll unfold for us. The deliverer provoked. Chapter 15, verse 1. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, as you do. And he said, I'll go into my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So let's just stop there for a moment here. We have Philistine, uh, we have Samson coming back from his 
cooling off period after he's killed the 30 Philistines. And we think that, you know, as far as a deliverance of the oppressors go, this might be a nice start. But really, 30 dead Philistines is not really going to fix the problem that this entire nation is occupying Israel. Uh, But it is a start. And then he goes off and he blows off some steam and he kind of goes from the Hulk back into Bruce Banner, you know, comes, becomes his mild-mannered self and he, he decides to go and kiss and make up with his wife and get on with the wedding, go and consummate the wedding. And uh, all is quiet on the Philistine front at this point. This is really a picture of what Israel was like. Israel was meant to be at odds with the Philistines. They were meant to be rebelling against them. The Philistines were occupying Israelite land that God had promised to Israel and said... I will help you deliver yourselves from the, the Philistines or from whichever oppressor, but they don't want that. They like the status quo. And so they're just stewing in their sin. And Samson is trying to kiss and make up with the Philistines instead of carrying on wiping them out, just like the Israelites would do, as we shall see them actually do. The Israelites come to him and they try to be like, no, 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 we want to keep the peace. We want to keep the peace. But that's not what God wants. And God always gets what he wants. So what he does is he goes back and he, uh, he you know, wants to see his wife and the dad's like, oops, <laughs> this is the biggest mistake this dad has ever made. And you can tell that the dad is afraid of Samson. Well, why wouldn't he be? He is now officially a psychopath. I mean, he's just killed 30 other Philistines. And he's I thought that you were, I thought that you left her. You stormed off. You didn't say where you were going. So I, I mean, I already paid for the wedding. You know, we've got, the, we've got the pasta there and everything. So we just did the wedding. We just married her off to the best man. Um, but, but since you just like good-looking women, look at her sister. You know, and there's a, like 11-year-old, like, what? You know, or whoever. Her youngest sister, she's pretty too, right? And Samson is like, what is going on here? And he sort of explodes. And so he says in verse 3, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Notice how he's morally justifying what's about to happen. It's almost as if he admits, okay, I kind of overreacted. They guessed my riddle, and I went on a killing spree. I'm sorry, I killed 30 of you. Uh, It won't happen again. And then he comes, and then this happens. He says, no, 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 no. The last time was my fault. This time is your fault. This is crazy. You gave my wife away. Now whatever happens is on your head. In verse 4. So... Samson went and caught 30 foxes. The Hebrew word can also mean jackals. That's kind of what's indigenous there, little jackals. And took torches, flaming torches. And if you are an animal rights person, this would be a good time for you to go to the bathroom. Um, Or at least block your ears. Well, he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Notice that they seem to agree with Samson that this is the father's fault because they kind of rope him into this as well. So this is no longer the status quo. This is quid pro quo. This is, you know, this for that. You killed 30 of us, uh, so we gave away your bride, so you burnt our standing grain, so we're going to burn your bride and your father. And you can see things are starting to escalate here. These are... 
disproportional responses. Everything here is just exponentially getting worse and worse. And Samson says in verse 7, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. Don't we sometimes do that too with sin? We say, I know I've been doing it, but I just have to do this one more thing that I know is wrong, and then I'll be able to quit. Gambling addicts are often like, okay, I know gambling's wrong, I've got to quit, I've lost all this money, but I just have to get the money back, and then I'll give up gambling forever. Whatever it is, people have the sense that if I just do this one more thing, just this last bank heist, and that will pay for my retirement, and then I'll never steal it. You're lying to yourself. Sin never lets you stop. Sin is the salt water that never quenches your thirst. It just makes you more and more thirsty. It just stakes your thirst for more sin. Who here thinks that Samson's really going to quit? Okay, I'm just going to do this one more thing, and then I'm done. Absolutely not. Now, now what he's done, though, is, is quite bad. I mean, yes, the dad shouldn't have married the bride off, but this disproportional response, the, the, I mean, forget the fact that he's killing these poor innocent jackals that are like, what, we were, just, we were just minding our own business. It shows, again, his supernatural speed and strength, the fact that he's able to catch 300 jackals, tie them together. You know, in research for the sermon, I try to do this with my cat and my dog, and that was impossible. Um, <laughs> Just trying to get two animals and tie them together and kind of stick a flame in there just took me the whole day before I got it right. Um, If anyone's selling any kittens, we're in the market. Um, No, I'm just kidding. But besides that, what's happening here is what he does is these terrified animals are running through the grain fields. This is at the time of the wheat harvest. So they've got all of this wheat that they've just harvested that's supposed to tie them over now. Um, for the rest of the season, and it all gets burnt up. So there are going to be thousands of people going hungry because of this. This is a a massive thing that he's done. This is eco-terrorism. This would be the equivalent of terrorists uh, poisoning our water supply in the whole city, something like that. So these people are now in major trouble, and they are furious about this. And who did this? Who would do such a thing? What Philistine would kill off so many Philistines? Well, it wasn't a Philistine. It was the Philistine's Hulk that she married, was trying to marry. And this is the father's fault because if he had come and everything was fine, he wouldn't have done this. So they kill the father and they kill her. And of course, now Samson is even more upset. And so verse 8 tells us, he struck them hip and thigh. It's just an idiom meaning what it sounds like. He gave them a strong blow. He struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. This whole episode reminds me of kind of what happened in the, in the Cold War with the, the, the nations, the Soviets and the United States not wanting to battle each other, and so they were funding the battles of others, and it kept escalating. So, you know, you have um, the Soviets funding East Germany to, to, so that communism would thrive, and so then uh, the USA funds West Germany to make sure that democracy thrives, and so then they build, the Soviets build a, a wall, or they fund the wall and let the East Germans build a wall around Berlin, and so the Americans cut off the, well, the Americans then go and occupy West Berlin, um, and so then they cut them off with this wall, and so then the Americans fund an airlift to bring food in, and I mean, it just keeps going on and on and on, and then the war breaks out 
in Vietnam and, you know, the Soviets fund the North Vietnamese and so the Americans help the South Vietnamese and then the, the Soviets fund the North, uh, North Korea. I'm getting the order of the dates wrong there, of course, We're kind of going backwards here, but before that they funded North Korea and then America sends in the, the Korean War, so it was funding the South Koreans and, and helping them. And this was happening in Africa as well with Angola and uh, it, just, it just kept on escalating. Well, why didn't America and, and the Soviet Union just fight each other? and just leave everyone else out of it because of a policy called mutual assured destruction. See, by the time this happened, both the Soviets and the United States had nuclear power. And if they started fighting each other, they would escalate the war to the point where they would be firing nuclear missiles at each other. And they constantly had the same power to destroy each other and it was a mutually assured destruction. So as long as we're not, if one of us starts fighting, we're both going to be completely destroyed, was the idea. And so all of this is going on. Well, this is what's happening here with Samson and the Philistines, is that these little battles have started now. The Israelites and the Philistines should just be fighting each other, but they're not. This is all happening here where God is using Samson to escalate things, to bring things to a head. And you would think now that the Israelites would come in, see what's happening, and say, finally, God is delivering us. We're just going to nuke the Philistines with the help of Yahweh himself. But that's not what happens. We get to the second point here in the scene. The deliverer rejected. Verse 9. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. By the way, Lehi is not what it was called at the time. It was about to be called Lehi. That's why he, uh, Lehi means jawbone. You'll see why it's called that in a moment. Verse 10, and the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said, we've come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. You know, quid pro quo. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is, that the, is this that you've done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I've done to them. Like, so what's happening here is that the Philistines are now mobilizing. They, they've lost all this food. They're in a major problem. This is really escalating things. So they draw up an army and they go up against Israel, well, the men of Judah. And Judah says, what's going on here? Like, why, why are we suddenly at war? Or have we not been good subjects to you? And they say, no, you've been destroying our food because of this guy, Samson. And they go to Samson. They say, what have you done? Notice that they're saying to him, do you not know, verse 11, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Think about that. Samson is the only person in the whole nation who's doing what God wants, and that is to free Israel from the rulers. And they come and they say, what are you doing? Don't you know how this works? We're the slaves, they're the masters. Don't rock the boat. They're siding with the Philistines. They love their sin. They just want to stay in it. What's the problem? Everybody's happy. Okay, sure, we're not keeping the covenant with Yahweh, but so what? Now you're, you're, you're causing trouble here. And you expect Samson to come up with this theological you know, call to arms, and this is why we're doing in the glory of God, and you know why I did this to the Philistines? Um, because this is what God wants for us, and this is what he's given us the land. No, instead he says, uh, they started it, I mean, that's his whole argument in verse 11. As they did to me, so I've done to them. It's like, why wouldn't I do this? 
They started it. I'm just doing them what they deserve. Verse 12, and they said to him, well, we've come down to bind you that we may give you into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson's not afraid. He says, uh, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. Why does he not want them to attack him? Because he knows his ability to defend himself, and he doesn't want to have to defend himself against his own people. So he's not, he's not afraid here at all. He's kind of warming up to his role as the one-man army against Philistia. And so the Israelites come and say, we want to make peace with Philistia. We want to hand you over. And he says, I'll come down as long as you promise not to get involved. And they're like, no, 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 no. We're just going to hand you over. And so verse 13, they said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Just before we move on, it's an application question at this point. What do you do when somebody points out that there is something in your life that should not be there according to what the Bible says? Somebody confronts you on sin in your life. A wrong way of thinking, maybe a wrong way of parenting, a wrong way of speaking to your spouse or about your spouse, a wrong attitude that you have about work or the government or God's sovereignty, or whatever it is, and somebody points that out to you, is your response, oh, this really stings, but thank you so much. I do need to get right with God. This is his grace. This is his mercy bringing this to a head in my life. I need to confess the sin and repent. That's option A. Let's call that the right option. Or is your response anything other than that? Hey, I'm, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Don't you know that this is how things are done? This is how we do things in my family. This is how we think. This is how things happen in our nation. This is how things happen in society. This is what's normal. Like, why do you want to rock the boat? This is the way it's done. I'm fine. You worry about you. I mean, that's kind of what's happening here. The Israelites are like, we're happy with the situation that God is not happy with. That's what happens anytime someone comes to you with a problem in your life that you're sinning and your response is, listen, I'm happy with the way I do things. You mind your own business. Okay, well, God doesn't like it, but who cares? What's God going to do about it? Well, don't mess with God, as we shall see. This brings us to our third scene. The deliverer delivers. Finally, he delivers. Verse 14 when he, Samson, came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him, you know, taunting him because he's like a prisoner now. Then the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. He was so strong, he just broke the handcuffs. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men by a fresh door. I, I like how the detail is there. There was a fresh jawbone. How do you get a fresh jawbone? That means it wasn't just a bone that had been lying there. There was a donkey there. And he takes the jawbone out, which is not an easy thing to do. And so you've got this jawbone with teeth and blood and skin. I mean, it's just a very um, graphic situation. Again, not something he's allowed to do, by the way, but he does this. And with it, he struck 
a thousand men. Now, again, that's not possible. One man against a thousand people, you're not going to win unless the Spirit of God is giving you the supernatural power and strength and speed and agility. And that's exactly what's happening. This is clearly a supernatural event. And this is so easy for Samson that look what he says. Instead of like trying to catch his breath, in verse 16, he makes a joke. He makes a pun. Um, and Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand men. Okay, so it doesn't rhyme um, in the English. It actually doesn't rhyme in the Hebrew. I'm going to read for you the Hebrew again because it's, it's really, it's very, it's very funny what he's doing here. I think it is. It's pretty cool. He, you know how in, in superhero movies, they always have the superhero make like really cheesy puns? I looked some up today, but they're just so bad, they would make you cringe. So, I mean, but you just go watch any Batman movie, you know, there's all these puns, and they're so cheesy. And this is where they get it from, I think, because here, Samson does this thing, and he kind of makes a little joke about it. Like, there's this huge pile of dead bodies, a thousand people just strewn there and on this hill. He's built a hill on top of a hill of dead bodies. The, the whole thing's over, and he looks around, and he's like, <laughs> and then he says this. Um, it's a homonym. Okay, so the word for, so what, what he's doing here is the word for donkey um, and the word for hill is the same word. So you know what a homonym is? It's two words that uh, mean something different but are the same word. Like the, in English, we would say bark. Bark can be the bark of a tree or the bark of a dog. It's the same word. It's spelled the same. Um, or a rock. You know, you can have a rock band or you can have a stone or a bat. A bat can be something that flies, or it can be something you hit a ball with. Okay, those are, it's exactly the same word, and it has two meanings. Well, that's what the word for donkey and the word for hill is exactly the same word in Hebrew. And so he makes this little rhyme that's it's kind of like a how much wood would woodchuck chuck if woodchuck could chuck wood. It's, it's exactly, listen, I'll read it for you. He says, Beli ha hamur hamur hamurutayim, beli ha hamur haketi elefish. I mean, I... It just, if it just sounded like a lot of hamur, hamur, he, he, that's the point. It's like a bunch of words strung together that you have to be like, wait, what did he say? How much wood, 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 what, what? You know? Um, I'll do it again. Bili ha hamur, hamur, hamurayatahim. So, in other words, um, he's saying here, uh, with the bone of a donkey, or the jawbone of a donkey, um, I made heaps upon heaps. So the word donkey and heaps and heaps. And the plural of heaps is all this hamur, ha hamur, hamur, hamuratayayim. And then he says again, bili ha hamur, heketi elaf ish. Elaf, a thousand ish people. So that part kind of derails because it doesn't go with the rest, but he has to make some sense, right? So he does this little rap of like, using all the donkey words. And I think the reason that's in there is just to show this is so easy for him that he's making jokes about it. He hasn't even broken a sweat. He thinks this is funny. Verse 17, as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramat Lehi, the jawbone hill. So it was named after that event. And the point of this dramatic scene is simply that when God is with you, no one can be against you. And so we need to fear God. You know, even if you're the only person doing what God wants you to do, you're safe. It'll be easy for you to stand up to thousands if that's what God wants. And in this case, he does. So we get to the fourth scene, the deliverer dependent. Here we see quite a poignant moment, of, um, a moment of humility. Verse 18, he was very thirsty. 
and he called upon Yahweh. By the way, this is the first judge to pray for a need. And he said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So what's interesting about this little prayer, I mean, it leaves a lot to be desired, right? He's not a great prayer, but he's kind of being sarcastic with God. Have you granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and now I'm going to die and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But in it, you see this. Firstly, he admits that it was God's doing. You've done this. You've given me this. this. You have granted this great salvation by my hand. And for the first time, he's calling the Philistines the enemy. Because he says to them, you know, you're going to let me fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. So this whole time, he's been trying to blend in with the Philistines, marry into the Philistines, kiss and make up with the Philistines. I'm just going to do this one thing, and then I'm going to quit. Then we can go back to being friends. And now for the first time, he's like, no, they're the enemy. They're the uncircumcised. Don't let me fall into their hands. And he cries out to God. And it's a very human moment here because he does this amazing thing. And when it's done, he's thirsty, and he can't provide water for himself. And for those of us who are going to do the Israel trip, we're going to go to this area where the Philistines were, and maybe I'll make you do that little exercise. I'll say, go stand on that hill, pretend to kill a thousand people, work up a thirst, and then see how it feels. <laughs> you feel like you're going to die, and there's just no water around. What, what are you going to do? Walk for miles and miles and miles when after you've sweated like this, after you've, you've dehydrated yourself? He's basically, he's basically dead. Who's going to help him? You think a Philistine is going to come to him with a cup of water? You look thirsty, buddy. How's he going to hydrate? I mean, it's a very, it's a very simple problem, and yet a very important problem. Our hero is about to die of thirst, not kryptonite. And God answers. Verse uh, 19, God split open the hollow place that's at Lehi, and water came out of it miraculously, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En Hakore, the one who calls. You see, Israel should be calling out to God. But here, he calls out to God, it is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. So there's that summary verse that this, this that we just saw kind of went on for the next two decades of Samson just wiping people out and doing stuff. Obviously, not all of it's recorded. Does Samson complaining to God remind you of something? Samson complaining to God about not having water? You know, you've given me this great salvation. I killed all these people, and now what? I'm going to die of thirst? Do you think of somebody else who said that? Yeah, Israel said that. The whole nation of Israel. Exodus 17, verse 3. The people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? It's exactly what's going on here with him. He, you, you forget the great thing God has given you because you're now obsessed with the little thing that you still need. Why ask for it that way? We know the rest of the story. Did Israel perish in the wilderness of thirst? No. God miraculously cleft a rock that spewed out water that fed the nation, that, that watered the nation. And he does the same thing for Samson here, a picture of what he did with Israel. It's really fascinating. And yet his attitude was the same. Do you ever have an attitude like that? Like, where are you, God? Why is this happening to me? Why aren't you delivering me from this thing? Forgetting Jesus Christ lived and died and bore your wrath on the cross so that you can live forever. And he secured your salvation. 
and you're complaining about what now? What, what is it that you're all upset about that God hasn't provided for you? After providing such a great salvation for you? Do you think that God would give you that salvation and then not the little lesser gift if you just ask him nicely? You know, I, I once saw the look on this kid's face when we were it was in our family and uh, one of the family members had bought this little child a remote control car and he opened it up and he was, his eyes lit up and it's like, wow, this is the remote control car I wanted. And then he realized there were no batteries and the parents were like, oh yeah, we forgot to get batteries. And the kid's face was like, <laughs> you know, like, <gasps> like he had just been abused or something. It's like, oh my goodness. He was like so, so upset because the parents hadn't got batteries. And the parents were like, we'll get batteries on the way home. But I just learned from that lesson. You, you never, ever give a remote control car without batteries because it's like kicking a kid in the teeth, you know? I mean, this kid looked like he'd been sucking on a lemon all day after that. The whole day was ruined because there were no batteries. Well, know this about God. He never gives a gift without batteries. He's not going to give you the greater gift and then not the, the lesser gift that makes it work. So if he gives you salvation and he calls you to a ministry and gives you an opportunity and wants you to do something for him, he's going to give you what you need to get that done. Don't you worry about that. Just ask him nicely. He likes it when you pray. He likes to answer that. You don't have to get sarcastic. What? You saved me. You called me into ministry. You brought me to this church and now I'm going to die of starvation? It's, what? Well, I'm hungry. Okay, well, go out and get some lunch. Oh, okay, yeah, I didn't think of that. I mean, but that's what people do. They're like, you gave me this great thing and this great opportunity, and now there's one little thing that's now really, really bugging me. And it's just a slap in the face. Remember Romans 8.32. It's a New Testament verse that just popped into my mind reading this. It's, it's such a great verse for this. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? kind of the lesson of Samson standing up to these thousand people. And then, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, Paul's saying he gave us this great thing. He's willing to give his son. What do you think? He's not going to give you the things you need? Of course he's going to give you what you need. So always think of Samson when you have that impulse to grumble against God. Matthew 6.33, Jesus taught, Seek first the kingdom of his righteousness and all these little things, food, clothing, what you'll put on, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, the things that the Gentiles care about. Seek first the kingdom of his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So next time you're, you're not sure how God's going to provide, don't worry about it. Just ask him. Just go before him. Say, you, you saved me, you called me, now help me do this next thing that I need. So God provided for us what we really needed, a savior, but not a flawed savior. What God provided for us is not Samson. Samson is a flawed savior. He's a, he's a superhero with problems. And what we need is a superhero with no problems, a superhero who's not whiny and complainy and, and driven by his own lusts and desires, but somebody who can stand up to those things and live a perfect, righteous life so that he can save us from our sin. And that's exactly what we get in Jesus Christ. But you might ask, so if all my sin is paid for, because we, we, we had a question at the Q&A on Wednesday night about Samson. It was a good question. It's like, well, how come he's in the, the hall of faith in Hebrews? 
if he's, he's just constantly sinning and falling short all the time. And we had to look at that, that God doesn't give judges as role models. So we established that. The book of Judges is not for us to follow as role models. In fact, it's a picture of what people do when they're doing whatever's right in their own eyes instead of doing what God wants them to do. But the essence of what Samson's doing right is he is finally, slowly, God is working with him, bringing him to a point. But here we start seeing it germinate. He's slowly trusting in God. He's giving credit to God. He's crying out to God. He's doing it very imperfectly, but he's starting to shape his faith in God. And what we will see, this will now grow and eventually bear fruit. And like right in the last moments of his, his death, he casts himself entirely on God. So you might say then, well, what about my situation? If, if, if Christ has paid for all of my sin, past sin, present sin, future sin, and all he's really looking at is my faith in him, not in my performance, not in my deeds, you might have this thought, then why is it wrong for me to keep on sinning? You might not say it that way, but the way you would say it is maybe, I know that this thing that I'm doing is wrong, but it's not that bad compared to what other people are doing. It's not hurting other people. And Jesus paid for it anyway. And if I'm saved anyway, then, I mean, look at Samson. He did all this wrong thing, and, you know, he's in heaven. Look at Abraham, what he did. He did some bad things. Jacob did some bad things. They're all in heaven. You know, Peter denied Christ, and he's in heaven. You know, the things I'm doing is not that bad. Jesus died for me. So we know from Romans 6 that Paul says, that's, that's not the right question. You know, should we sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How, how we who have died to sin live again? Um, you know, you know the verse. And the point there is, if you've died to sin, how, why are you living to sin? You're now free from sin. But... But this whole idea here that, well, Samson's going to be okay, maybe I'm going to be okay. Well, there's a few reasons, theological reasons, but there's also a very practical reason. Sin always comes with consequences. So even if, yes, you're going to make it to heaven and you're saved in the end, your sin in this life, you think it's not hurting other people, you're wrong. If you're part of a church, it is hurting other people. It's hurting the church, whether people know about it or not. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the lesson there. But more than likely, you're going to be caught in your sin, and the sin that you're doing is not only going to hurt others, it's going to hurt you. Which is what we will see as the main point of a sermon called Sin Makes You Stupid, which I will preach next week. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder, uh, this strange story of this deliverer and his... um, hot temper and his weaknesses and yet Lord we see you starting to use circumstances in his life to show him his need for you his dependence on you the need for humility that your will will be accomplished no matter what he does and so Father I pray that you would help us to learn that lesson too that we would be a needy people that we know that we need you that we need to be dependent on you that we need to be obedient to you to protect us from the consequences of our own sin So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for rescuing us once and for all from the condemnation that comes from our sin. We pray that you would help us to live a life worthy of the calling of being Christians. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.